Welcome back to NC Realtors Redefined, the NC Realtors podcast. On this episode, from our Mobile Money series on Facebook, real estate lawyer Trista Corzildo talks about hot topics and risk management. But first, do you have feedback on a story or a topic that you'd like to hear covered on this podcast? Then give the NC Realtors Redefine a call at 336-550-4437. When leaving your voicemail, be sure to tell us your name and where you're from. Your comments may be used on a future episode of NC Realtors Redefine. I'm Trista Kersidlow, and I am really excited to have the opportunity to join you. What I wanted to talk about this morning is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and it's the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, the way that it interacts a little bit with the way that we do our online advertising and our websites. And then I also want to talk about Fair Housing Act and the way that it regulates our advertising, especially when it comes to social media. And then I want to talk, if I have time, I'm trying to get everything into my 15 or 20 minutes here. Um, I want to talk about what to do when you are representing a seller and your seller is potentially recording potential buyers in their property. We're not having any live showings right now in Kansas. We are virtual only. Um, We actually bought the house that I'm in right now virtually. Lots of surprises when you do that, but a good opportunity to, to get involved in the market that way. All right. Here we go. So the Americans with Disabilities Act was enacted in 1990, which is very weird. I was talking to my daughter about the ADA and kind of what it means when I was talking to her about doing this Facebook Live today. And she was in shock that really within my lifetime, we had adopted this act when in her mind, We shouldn't have needed an Americans with Disabilities Act or a Fair Housing Act because people should just not suck, is what she said. But the ADA um, exists, and we exist within its parameters in the way we advertise. So instead of thinking thinking of it as this negative thing where we need to avoid violating it, I like to think of it as a tool. How can we comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act and use that as a tool to reach a bigger audience. So, enacted in 90, which means it was signed by HW, and it prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities. Now, in 1988 is when the Fair Housing Act was adopted to include, or when the Fair Housing Act was amended to include protection for handicapped individuals. They define the two things the same, disability and handicap. So I'm going to read the definition. An individual with a disability is a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities or has a record of such an impairment or is regarded as having such an impairment. So we have the definition of disability. And when we look at the number of people that that definition encompasses, it's huge. And that number is only going to continue to increase because the American population is aging. And as I've discovered, as people age, some things quit working 
and you might start to fall within that category of disabilities. So as our boomers age, the population that falls within this category is going to continue to increase, and we need to look at this as a great opportunity um, when it comes to the Americans with Disabilities Act and the protections that it applies. We need to look at those and say, I have an opportunity to reach a broader market. All right, so what does the ADA require? Title III is the section that applies to public accommodations. Now, when most of y'all went through the licensure process and you talked about the ADA, you would have talked about it when it comes to, is my office accessible? Um, what do the doorways look like? Those types of conversations about bricks and mortar businesses. But that's not what we look at when it comes to public accommodations today. Now, when the con when Congress adopted the ADA. This is one of the things that just makes me laugh and cracks me up. Um, Congress is the only entity I know that when it is defining a term, it uses that term to define itself. So when they defined places of public accommodation, they went into a few specifics when it came to commercial facilities, private entities that offer certain examinations and courses related to occupational certification, but then it also defines a place of public accommodation as a place of public accommodation. I love it. What that means is when we look at place of public accommodation, it grows in its definition. So while originally we were talking about bricks and mortar locations, now we're talking about where are services being provided. And in the last decade or so, that definition of public accommodation has expanded through the courts to include websites. So when we look at the website lawsuits, is it a place of public accommodation? The courts have clearly said it is, but they've gone a step further in the way that they've looked at this model. And they have said in the 10th and 11th circuits that tester plaintiffs have standing. Now, most of us are used to hearing tester plaintiffs and thinking immediately Fair Housing Act. And testers would be individuals who contact you um, to kind of to, to test things out and see if a potential violation exists. Very similar when it comes to the Americans with Disabilities Act. But what it means is I can be completely uninterested in using your services. I can be here in Kansas in my office looking at your website in the Carolinas, find a potential violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and I can file suit. Because the ADA doesn't just allow for the Department of Justice to act, it allows for private litigation as well. So that's one of the reasons I'm here, is we've had a huge increase in private litigation and claims um, that the Americans with Disabilities Act has been violated. Two ways of looking at that, you have attorneys looking for their bread and butter because it is guaranteed attorney's fees, but also we just have an increase when it comes to individuals who are seeking services online. Instead of immediately saying, I wanna to come to your office, instead individuals are expecting all services to be rendered online, which is certainly what happened to us when we bought our house a few weeks ago. Now, the Department of Justice has also taken action on the Americans with Disabilities Act saying websites are not accommodable. Those individuals with disabilities are not able to use those websites. And some of the Department of Justice actions that I think are interesting when we look at them is that they cover the full spectrum of services that would be online. Peapod, which is a grocery delivery system on the East Coast, 
Quick Trip, which is gas stations in the Midwest, the Museum of Crime and Punishment. And then these are the ones that stick out to me. First of all, the Law School Admissions Council, just let that wash over you. And then we also have Louisiana Tech, Florida State, Harvard, and MIT. Now, the interesting thing about those schools is that when the website accessibility question came up, it didn't focus on how accessible is the site, how can I use the site. Instead, it focused on what is on the site that is in video form, and it wasn't closed captioned, and that was determined to be a violation. I was determined that a video needs to be closed captioned so individuals that are hearing impaired have the opportunity to receive that information. So I want us to look at Title III. We know there's litigation, but let's ask the question, what does the website need to have then in order to be accessible? The last time the Department of Justice weighed in and said in writing, these are our expectations, was 2010. And in 2010, they issued a statement saying websites that provide goods and services must be accessible to people with disabilities unless the goods and services are available in some equivalent manner, which provides us with nothing. We just know that the, the, the good or service that's provided on the website has to be accessible. So what accessibility means is kind of a question. And so the World Wide Web Consortium issued some guidelines. And so that is the WCAG. 2.0 level AA concepts were released this year. And what WCAG 2.0 from the World Wide Web Consortium, it boils down what we need to have on our websites. And so it's ensured that a page is designed so it can be read by assistive technology in a logical order is number one. So here's your homework number one. I want you to get a screen reader and there are some free ones that you can use. NVDA has one. Serotech System Access, and then if you're on a Mac or you have an Apple device, um, Apple VoiceOver is going to be for you. So I want you to take that screen reader and I want you to go to your website and have your website read to you. What does my website sound like on a screen reader for someone who is visually impaired and cannot see my website? What does it sound like? Now, I have a screen reader um, from the National Federation of the Blind that I've put on mine. And I put it on there just as a tool to kind of better understand how individuals that have a vision impairment are hearing the, the web. And um, unfortunately, my younger daughter discovered it and also found that she can plug in her homework program for her required book reading. And my screen reader will read her books and then mark them as read so she will get credit at school, even though while it is reading her books, she is outside playing with the neighborhood kids. Yeah. So take that opportunity to have your website read to you and see, does it follow in a logical order? And if it doesn't make sense, then you need to make changes. Along with that is providing alternative text for images. If you have a picture on your website, we need to have alternative text for that picture. What is someone seeing? 
some great guidance exists for alternative texts, so take an opportunity to read some of that. The first thing, don't start with, this is a picture of. Jump right into your description. My nephew took the opportunity to hack into my website, and he provided the alternative text for the picture of me. And if you go there today and have your web reader read it to you, it will say, Trista Kersidlow is a moderately overweight white female. In her, and I think he says middle-aged white female. Very nice. Ensure the page can only be used with a keyboard. So this is homework number two, or homework number three, because alternative text is two. Homework number three, I want you to go on your website and see, can I navigate this site using only my up and down and side to side buttons instead of using the mouse? The reason for this is we have an increase in individuals who have limited mobility when it comes to using the mouse and being able to get around the page with that or have limited ability to use touch screen. So um, I have really low blood pressure and when I run in the winter for reasons I don't completely understand, my doctor tried to explain to me, I can't use a touch screen for about an hour and a half after my run. So that for some individuals, that is a constant lifelong issue. They cannot use a touch screen. So we need to be able to use our up, down and side to side keys or have it accessible via a mouse. But there's a whole group of individuals that can't use a mouse. And the doctor that explained my problem said that the age group for the mouse user problem is my age group. And it's Generation X kids who used way too much um, Atari and have caused function problems with their thumb. All right, provide sufficient color context for text or color contrast for text. Now, when we think of color contrast, this is going to be um, for individuals who have spent their whole life being told they're colorblind, and so they don't distinguish well between reds and greens, or maybe pastels, or shades of blue and grays. And so my brother-in-law is colorblind, so we sent out a Christmas card, and it had um, a dark green background and red words on top of it. And when I talked to him about the card later, he said he couldn't see anything that had been written because the color contrast wasn't significant enough because of his color contrast issues. So when we're designing a website, we want to keep those color contrast issues um, in mind. A great tool that will tell you if you have color contrast issues is on Google Chrome, and it is called Wave. And so you download the Wave tool, which is web accessibility evaluation tool, I think is what it's called. And you download Wave, have it take a look at your website, and it will ping if there are any issues with color contrast. And so then you can take the opportunity to make that change. And then our last homework is provide captions and audio descriptions for video or audio presentations. Closed captioning, pretty easy to put into play. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, all the places that you stream or go live, they have a tool that you can use their um, analytical device that looks at voice recognition technology. So as soon as I am done, when I go live on my page, I can use a program called BeLive, and it will provide closed captioning as I speak. I can't use that when I'm just on somebody else's page. I haven't figured that out yet. So as soon as this is done and Facebook will have it as a recording, then we can turn on our closed captioning and then their voice recognition technology will closed caption it. 
It will not be perfect. There will be some flaws. If you use the tool yourself or if you use the YouTube tool or a third-party tool, you can go in and make changes so that it is perfect. So I'll probably go back and watch the video next week and I'll put the closed captioning on and I'll discover that my name is like Teresa Castillo instead of Trista Cursidlo. That's usually what it does. Sometimes I'm Teresa, but it makes some changes like that where it doesn't understand. Um, this is so crazy to me because Kansans don't have accents, but when it comes to voice recognition technology, Kansans are the second highest states for problems with the voice recognition technology. I read an article about it this morning. So those are your pieces of homework when it comes to what we need to do for ADA accessibility. And think of this as you have an opportunity to agree to reach a huge part of the population, the entire population, regardless of ability. Now, I had a question that somebody sent to me earlier this week they wanted me to talk about, and it was the Fair Housing Act and the way that it interplays. Now, Americans with Disabilities Act only disabled individuals, but there's a section of the Fair Housing Act that deals with the way that we advertise. And it says to make, print, or publish, or cause to be made, printed, or published any notice, statement, or advertisement with respect to the sale or rental of a dwelling that indicates any preference, limitation, or discrimination based on our protected basis is illegal. Now, there have been a few cases that have come out of um, states, Florida being one of them, where there was a contention that the Fair Housing Act had been violated due to the, the IDX feed that someone has on their website. The case in particular, um, an individual had his feed, his IDX feed onto his business uh, website, and a complaint was made because one of the listings, not his listing, a listing of his peer that was in the IDX feed said no canids. The individual meant to write no kids, um, the person who had the listing, who wrote the no canids, meaning no kids, um, was operating under the belief that it was a senior living facility. It was 55 and up. It was not. So was no canids a violation of the Fair Housing Act? For the person that listed it, definitely a red flag problem there. When you're saying no children, when children would be allowed because it is not a senior living facility underneath the, those rules. But is the peer who just has it in his IDX feed responsible for that? Now, there's a law called the Communications Indecency Act. And what the Communications Indecency Act int is intended to do is provide protection for just sites that are all look, no touch, meaning I don't go in and make changes to whatever is posted. So Craigslist is the seminal case. And the question is, is Craigslist responsible for ads that violate the Fair Housing Act. And the Communications Indecency Act protected Craigslist in that case because Craigslist does not edit any of those listings. It just posts them. Now, there was another case called Roommates.com and Roommates.com claimed the safe harbor of the Communications Indecency Act and the court said it didn't apply. And the reason it didn't apply in Roommates.com was because Roommates.com provided a pull-down menu. So I could theoretically go on to Roommates.com and through the pull-down menu say, I want a roommate between the ages of 45 and 50 who is female, who is white, 
who has no children and really likes cats. Now, when we look at that, the Miss Murphy exemption is going to apply and protect me posting that under the Fair Housing Act, but it's not going to protect me under the Civil Rights Act of 1866, 100 years before the Fair Housing Act, because it says that I can't discriminate based on race. So the courts kicked out the protection under the Communications and Decency Act for roommates because they provided the pull-down menu that allowed for the violation. So when we look at the IDX feed, is it roommates.com or is it Craigslist? It's Craigslist. You don't go in and manipulate that data. You don't go in and change those things. So I hope that answers the Florida question that somebody posted. Now, five minutes, and I'm going to talk about videos. So about four years ago, um, three, sorry, three years ago, my neighbor that lived across the street put her house on the market, and like all good neighbors, I ran over immediately and said, what can I possibly do to get you out of my neighborhood? Do you want me to pack boxes? What can I do? And she was in the process of water brushing, and I don't know if any of you water brush, but it's like fancy calligraphy, um, and she water brushed these signs, and they said, we have teenagers and trust issues Everything you say or do in this home will be recorded. Thank you for your cooperation. And those signs went everywhere in the house. And the wreath on the front door was one. And then there was one in just about every room in the house. They recorded everything that a potential buyer said or did. And as she's painting the signs, she's like, what do you think the law says about this? What is your opinion? And there are two kind of ways that we look at this. The law has not caught up with technology. And so audio recordings, meaning what you hear, are going to be treated differently than visual recordings. And so when we look at audio recordings, every state in the union has adopted rules on audio recording, and you are either a two-consent or a one-consent state. One-consent state, one party to the conversation has to consent to the conversation, Two-party consent, both parties to the conversation have to consent um, for it to be recorded. Those laws do not really come into play here, though we would like them to, because it's a complete misnomer if I am the seller um, recording what's happening in the property at an open house, I'm not there. I'm not there at a showing. I'm not there at an open house. I'm not a party to the conversation. So I can't give consent, even in a one consent state, for the party to be recorded. So we have to have that signage if we're going to have audio recording saying you consent to being recorded. Do not make the assumption that someone will see the camera and think and acknowledge that they are being recorded. Let's, we're not going to bury our heads in the sand about that. The second is the video recording. And when it comes to video recording, and I think North Carolina is one of the states that has language part of your contract. I know South Carolina does. At least I think they do. Anyway, and when it comes to video recording, the question is, what is your expectation of privacy? Now, expectation of privacy is very generational when I've had the opportunity to talk to folks. Myself and my children when we started looking at properties a few years ago, we had no expectation of privacy. My children viewed this as their opportunity to dance for an audience, and they would find whatever cameras were in an, um, a property when we went to showing, and they would do their TikTok routines, and that's how they entertained themselves. But when my mother-in-law um, looked for a house, 
she had every thought that what she said and did in the property could not be recorded, that she was, you know, with her agent and with her family, and that would just not be acceptable. She had a different belief when it came to privacy. But what does the law tell us is that when we're in a place of public, then we don't have that expectation of privacy. So when we look at an open house, I think we need to look at it as it's public. But we want to make sure that we've got some type of notification saying you are being recorded. As a buyer's agent, have a conversation with your client up front. Say, we're going to be recorded. You need to be prepared for that. And so we want to put our game faces on and let's keep our comments to ourselves, which changes the way that you are showing houses. Because in the past, you would want someone and welcome them to start making comments and you know, mentally be moving in, that was a good sign. That's just not the way that it works now. So we've got to have that conversation. Before COVID, and we had to start looking at properties virtually, um, our agents and I, um, our agent and my husband and I, we would just text constantly walking through the property. Um, We liked that because then we had a list of issues and we wouldn't forget something later. That worked well for us. And we communicate that way anyway. You will want to find a way to communicate with your clients when they're in the property, whether that's taking notes, texting one another, figuring out some way that you can indicate what your your concerns are, and then do not have a conversation on the front porch or the back porch about the property, because that's going to probably be one of your most common places to have your cameras. And the first thing we did when we moved into this house is my daughter went out back and started setting up blink cameras because our house came with a cat and she had never had a cat before. And she likes to go on and watch the cat and talk to the cat via the camera when she is not here. So that's a conversation we've got to start having with our clients. To get exclusive NC Realtors content, join the NC Realtors Mobile Mondays group on Facebook. Be sure to catch up on every episode of NC Realtors Redefined by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or SoundCloud.